Welcome back. This is Reading Through the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament, walking through uh, the Old Testament portions of Scripture, the narrative parts. We've gone through Exodus, and now we are going to begin the book of Leviticus. This is for uh, week 11, for the week of March 12th through March 18th. Thank you for joining us. I'm so glad you're here um, listening and uh, reading the Bible and seeing what we can learn about our great God and his way of salvation uh, in the Old Testament. So as we turn to the book of Leviticus, I'm sure some of you, uh, if you know what's coming, you've approached this book with a bit of dread maybe in your hearts, Um, a bit of fear or a bit of, oh man, here we go again. Or here we go, because remember, Leviticus is full of all those regulations and ceremonies and sacrifices and laws and rules and commands. And it seems to be almost monotonous. And there's a sense in which that is intentional. That is intentional because the the, the way in which God does this in such a specific um, way is intended to drive home the point that the law of God has such a high, specific, particular standard for you and me that ultimately we cannot do it. This is why the the law is intended to do this. It's a schoolmaster. Remember that. Paul calls the law of God a schoolmaster in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, kind of. I forget where it's at exactly in there. But yeah, he highlights the fact the law is like a, is like a, a tough schoolmaster that is intended to teach us the fact that we cannot keep the law of God. We lie under its curse. It's kind of like when Jesus was talking to that rich young ruler. And you remember he came and... He, he told Jesus, um, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus here knows he's got a man who does not really think he's that bad. He's not really a sinner because he's saying, what can I do? What things can I do in order to be good enough to get into heaven? And Jesus tells him, well, you know, follow the Ten Commandments. And the young man says, well, I've done all those. And then Jesus says, okay, well, if you really want to get into heaven, then you need to sell everything you've got and follow me. And the reality is, is what Jesus is doing there. He doesn't give him promises, does he? He doesn't give him the gospel. He gives him the law and says, really, if you want to follow the law of God, you have to sell everything and follow me. Because remember, the first four commandments are about giving everything, all that you are loving, fearing, and trusting in God alone and not coveting the things of this world. And what that highlighted is that young man, that rich young ruler was actually um, under the curse of the law himself. And what, and so Jesus, as he did that to the rich young ruler, so he was doing this, uh, before his coming, uh, because we believe Jesus was also present in the types and shadows and prophecies and promises and ceremonies of, uh, the old Testament. Jesus here is in the book of Leviticus teaching Israel and teaching us, uh, giving us the law so that we will see that we can't keep it, but he has done it for us. And everything that we lack and everything that we need and everything that we look to for salvation can only and solely be found in him 
And he is sufficient, more than sufficient, to meet all of our needs and to make us right with God. That's what the law of God is intended to do. And that's why it's so specific, so directed, and so focused. It's meant to pierce our conscience and to drive home the fact that we cannot do it, but he has done it all. And he gives it all freely as a gift to be received through faith. So the law opens up with the law for sacrifices, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, uh, guilt offerings. And then we talk about the priests and the offerings this week and the consecration of Aaron and his sons and so on. So as we think about all of these sacrifices, I want to read this. This is called a Catechism on Sacrifice, a resource for understanding Old Testament worship. Now, this is by Chad Bird. Um, which to give a little plug, Chad Bird is going to be coming to our men's conference in March of 2024. So Chad Bird, the guy that we're going to read this article from and that I use often on this podcast, he is going to be at our church speaking at our men's conference next March. So mark your calendars and be excited and look forward to that. But this is a catechism. So in other words, a catechism, right, is all that means is it's a, is a way of teaching something through questions and answers. And that's what we're seeing here. It's a basic handbook to teach you something, often through the form of a question and an answer. And that's exactly what this is going to be. Chad Bird is giving us a a basic handbook about how to understand sacrifice and Old Testament worship. And I think this is going to help us get a basic grasp of the whole book of Leviticus and and, and actually a very... Uh, uh, you know, as we think about the whole Old Testament worship, hopefully this will help as we can put this in our minds and, and think about it this way. So uh, Chad Bird opens up this way. He says, if you've ever attempted to read the Bible from cover to cover, chances are you made it through Genesis and maybe Exodus. Somewhere in Leviticus, however, your head began to spin. All this stuff about sacrifices, priests, blood, fat, entrails makes it sound like a ritualistic butcher's guide, but it's not. Believe it or not, Leviticus is packed with the good news of a God who loves his people and who provides them with the means of grace whereby they can receive him and his gifts. Leviticus, far from being an esoteric relic from Israel's past, is a gospel book of the church. It teaches of God's holiness, his love, his sacraments, his worship. It is a book we desperately need to recover. But yes, it is hard to understand, especially why there is all this focus on sacrifice why all these sacrifices? Why all these details about flesh and blood and fat? What's the difference between all these things? And finally, what do they teach us about Christ's sacrifice and the sacraments, or we would call them as Baptist ordinances, of the church? To answer these questions, I wrote this Catechism on Sacrifice several years ago. It consists of questions and answers to aid you in your study of Leviticus, as well as any part of the Old Testament that discusses the divine service in Israel. Read it through, save it for your next Bible study, forward it to your pastor, use it as you see fit. I offer it as a brief resource for the church. So here's the catechism on sacrifice. First question, what is sacrifice? In the liturgy of Israel, sacrifice was the divinely ordained means of grace by which God gave blessings to his people through the things of creation. The sacrifice belonged to God. He graciously gave it to his people so that they, by faith, might receive the divine gifts communicated therein. Some sacrifices were also the means whereby Israel gave thanks to God for his gifts to them. 
Next question, when did, is, when did sacrifice begin? Sacrifice began after mankind's fall into sin. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, Genesis 3.21. Although the killing of these animals to provide coverings for Adam and Eve is not specifically called a sacrifice, it did require the death of animals. Sinners were covered only by the death of another who was killed in their place. The first explicit reference to sacrifice is in Genesis 4, where Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. What kinds of things were sacrificed? Well, one can divide the various kinds of sacrifices into two main categories, bloody and unbloody. Bloody sacrifices were the offerings of animals that were ritually slaughtered. This ritual slaughter ordinarily took place near an altar, upon which a portion of the animal's blood would be sprinkled or poured out or smeared. Not any and every animal could be sacrificed, but only those ordained for slaughter by the word of God. These animals, which were always domesticated animals, included the following. Bovine, so bulls, cows, heifers, calves, and oxen. Sheep slash goats, he goats, she goats, ewes, rams, and lambs or birds, turtle doves, and pigeons. Unbloody sacrifices were, offering, were offerings from the agricultural produce of the people of God. These offerings included the following, wheat, barley, olive oil, and wine. The unbloody sacrifices were ordinarily offered in conjunction with the bloody sacrifices. Why could only certain animals be sacrificed? Well, there were three groupings of animals in the Old Testament, unclean, clean, and clean plus sacrificable. First of all, unclean animals were to be avoided totally. They were not to be sacrificed, eaten, domesticated, or their carcasses touched. These animals are listed in Leviticus 11. Clean animals could be domesticated and eaten. Clean plus sacrificial animals could not only be domesticated and eaten, they were also ordained by God as sacrificial victims. Various reasons have been put forward to explain these three classifications. Some of the more common theories are, one, arbitrary. The lists, though given by God, are arbitrary. The classes of animals and the individual species placed therein are listed as such by God, but there is no definite and ascertainable reasons for why some animals are clean and others unclean. Secondly, pagan connection. The animals deemed unclean represented deities in pagan cultures or were used in pagan sacrifice. To avoid confusion and possible syncretism, these animals were to be avoided by the Israelites. Three, anti-life. The animals classified as unclean inhabited locations that were inimical to, to life, or they were predators or carcass eaters. Because of the symbolism of death attached to them, they were to be avoided. Fourthly, hygienic. The animals were unclean, were unclean, which were common carriers of disease. Or fifthly, allegorical. Positive and negative traits of animals were allegorically applied to people. Animals whose ways do not exemplify proper conduct were unclean, whereas animals whose ways corresponded to the proper conduct of man were clean. For example, a cud-chewing animal was clean because the clean and holy man should ruminate on the word of God. Or sixthly, the separation of Israel. Just as God chose Israel from all the nations to be a holy people to him, so he chose certain animals from all the beasts of the earth to be clean animals. The unclean animals thus represented the Gentiles, whose ways, if adopted, would have defiled the people of God.
The last of these theories has Old Testament and New Testament support to recommend it. We may first take note of Leviticus 20, 24 through 20. Uh, he actually, actually on the paper, it says 24 through 24, but which closely connects Israel's separation from her pagan neighbors with Israel's separation of unclean from clean animals. So this actually begins in verse 22. You therefore, you are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I shall drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean, and you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Secondly, when the Lord gives St. Peter the vision of unclean animals and commands him to kill and eat them, the primary message is that Peter is to receive Cornelius and the Gentiles into the church. The Gentiles, formerly regarded as unclean, are not to be regarded as unclean or common, for what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Acts 10.15 only domesticated animals, which were both clean and sacrificable, were to be offered up on the altar. They alone were ordained by God to be in the holy place and to be placed upon the holy altar. Like the priests, they were separated from all other animals by God for this holy purpose and this holy place. Thus, the three categories of animals closely correspond to the three groups of people in the world, Gentiles, Israelites, and Israelite priests. Gentiles equaling the unclean animals, Israelites equaling clean animals not used for sacrifice, and then thirdly the priests, which were a smaller group of clean animals used for sacrifice. Next question, what were the primary sacrifices in Israel's liturgy? The primary sacrifices in Israel's liturgy were the whole burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the peace offering, and the meal offering. What was the whole burnt offering? The whole burnt offering was the foundational sacrifice of Israel. Every morning and every evening, a whole burnt offering of a one-year-old lamb was sacrificed at the tabernacle and temple. This was the continual burnt offering. Similar whole burnt offerings were also sacrificed at other times. What distinguished this sacrifice is indicated by the name, the whole burnt offering. All the parts of the animal which were ritually acceptable for sacrifice were wholly burnt upon the altar. Its smoke went up to God from the altar. What was the sin offering? The sin offering was sacrificed by individuals or the whole congregation when they broke the law of God. The type of animal offered, bull, he-goat, she-goat, lamb, dove, or pigeon, depended upon the social rank of the individual. The blood of the victim was smeared on the horns of the main altar and poured out at its base. If it was offered for a priest or for the whole congregation, some blood was also taken into the holy place to be sprinkled on the veil and smeared on the horns of the altar of incense. The flesh of the animal was cooked and eaten by the priests, if offered for a layman's sin, or burned outside the camp, if offered for a priest or for the whole congregation. What was the guilt offering? The guilt offering was similar to the sin offering, though this sacrifice was offered for those sins in which reparation could be made to the offended party. 
A ram was the designated victim for the guilt offering. In addition, if applicable, property was to be restored plus 20% of its value to the offended party. The blood was poured out on the main altar, and the cooked flesh of the victim was eaten by the priests in the court of the tabernacle or temple. What was the peace offering? The peace offering was the sacrifice in which the worshiper received back a portion of the sacrificial meat to be cooked and eaten in a ritual meal. A male or female animal from the flock or herd was sacrificed. Its blood was poured onto the main altar. Its breast and right leg were given to the priest and his family as part of his income. And the rest of the animal was consumed in a communal meal. The Israelites thus consumed the very animal who died for his atonement. It was a preview of the Lord's Supper, in which we eat the very body of the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed for us on the altar of the cross. Peace offerings were sacrificed to give thanks to God, praise, to fulfill a vow, or as free will offerings. What was the meal offering? The meal offering was a bloodless sacrifice. It consisted of wheat or barley and was ordinarily accompanied by olive oil, incense, and wine. It was part of every morning and evening whole burnt offering. Why was blood so significant? Well, in the sacrificial liturgy, blood was of vast more importance than any other part of the animal. For example, no part of the animal was ever taken into the holy place, much less into the holy of holies. Indeed, no part of the animal, with the sole exception of the blood, was ever taken any closer to the inner sanctum than the altar in front of the tabernacle or temple. In certain sacrifices, however, the blood was taken into the holy place and even into the holy of holies. Leviticus 17, 10-11 explains the importance of blood in the sacrificial liturgy. And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. This passage has several noteworthy features. First of all, the life, literally the soul of the flesh, is in the blood. The very life of the animal is located precisely in its blood. To have the blood is to have the life. To be touched by the blood is to be touched by the life. Life is not an abstraction. It is a visible, tangible fluid. Life is blood, and blood is life. Where there is no blood, there is no life. Secondly, I have given it to you. Blood is a divine gift from the Lord and giver of life. This is his institution. He has given it to his church that they might have the life that is located in the blood. Thus, the blood not only has life, it conveys life, for the Lord has given it for that very purpose. Thirdly, on the altar, God gives his church the life of the blood on the altar. The altar is not just a place of death, but of life, for here the life-giving blood is placed. The lifeblood is drained from the victim and placed on the altar. Because the altar is most holy, the blood, when it touches the altar, becomes most holy. Therefore, by the word of God, the blood of the sacrifice is living and holy and bestows life and holiness. It is life in the animal. It becomes holy on the altar, and it is life-giving and holy-giving to the church. To make atonement for your souls is also the reason. The lifeblood of the victim atones for sinners. This is its purpose. It removes sin. It removes death. It removes unholiness. 
This happens not just in the killing of the victim, but in the placing of the victim's blood upon the altar. No blood is, uh, no blood is atoning blood unless it touches the holy things of God. It is sprinkled, poured out, or smeared on God's altar, God's priest, or God's tabernacle. It is then atoning blood, for it has become holy blood by contact with God's holy thing. Atoning blood is therefore holy blood, life-giving blood. It is given for the removal of sin and the bestowal of holiness. Next question, why was fat so significant? In addition to the blood of the sacrificial victim, the fat also belonged exclusively to God. All fat is the Lord's. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. You shall not eat any fat or any blood. Leviticus 3, 16 through 17. The fat to be removed were the layers of fat beneath the surface of the animal's skin and around its organs, which can be removed as opposed to the fat which is inextricably part of the muscle. No explicit reason is given for the God's use, exclusive use of the fat. Presumably, however, the fat was considered to be the best part of the animal and was therefore reserved for God. The Hebrew word for fat is often used metaphorically to denote the best. For example, the Caleb or fat of the land, Genesis 45, 18, and the Caleb or fat of the wheat, Deuteronomy 32, 14, refers to the best of the land and the best of the wheat. In the Messianic banquet, the Lord promises to make a feast of fats on his holy mountain, Isaiah 25, verse 6 and following. Next question, who performed the sacrifices? Well, Leviticus 1, 3 through 5 describes who does what in the liturgy of sacrifice. In beginning in verse 3, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And he shall slay the young bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priest shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Thus, the Israelite who brought the animal for sacrifice would kill it near the altar in front of the tabernacle or temple. The sinner for whom this animal's blood would be shed, he was the slayer. The killing, however, was God's institution and gift for by it, by it the sinner was accepted before the Lord. After the victim was killed, the priests assumed responsibility for the liturgical actions involving the blood, like sprinkling the blood on the altar. The body of the victim in other words, then the whole burnt offering was then skinned and cut into its various pieces by the Israelite who brought the sacrifice. After the skinning and quartering were completed, the priest would place the sacrificial flesh and fat on the altar to be wholly consumed by the fire of Yahweh in his altar. Beginning at verse 6, he shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, and the suet over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. There were thus specific responsibilities assigned both to the layman and the priest. Any contact with the altar, however, was reserved exclusively for the priest. 
Where were these sacrifices performed? Well, sacrifices were performed near an altar. The victim was killed near the altar, not on it or over it, except in the case of birds. And its blood was placed on the altar or smeared on the horns of the altar. After the institution of the Sinai Covenant, almost every sacrifice was performed at the altar in front of the tabernacle or temple. When an Israelite brought a bovine for sacrifice, it would be killed on the east side of the altar in the forecourt. The slaughter of a sheep or goat took place on the north side of the altar. Doves and pigeons were killed over the altar, as exceptional cases, by the removal of the bird's head, after which its blood was drained on the side of the altar. Well, how were the animals sacrificed? The Old Testament sacrificial liturgy does not explicitly state how the animal was to be killed, except for birds in Leviticus 1.15. The verb used for slaughter, however, does connote the slitting of the throat. This particular manner of slaughter would help in the collection of blood from the animal for placement upon the altar. The slitting of the throat is also supported by rabbinic tradition. Next question, why did the Israelite place his hand upon the head of the animal? The man who brought a sacrificial animal placed his hand upon the head of the animal before he killed it. We see this in Leviticus 1.4. A similar action was performed by the high priest on the annual day of atonement, Yom Kippur. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. Various explanations for this rite have been given. Like, first of all, sin is transferred to the animal. Second of all, the man is identified with the sacrifice. Thirdly, the man declares his purpose to sacrifice this animal. Or fourthly, and that the man owns this animal. To understand the meaning of the laying of on of hands, it is necessary to consider the following. First of all, the verbs for the laying on of the hand implies pressure. The hand is not merely placed on the head. The Israelite leans on the head of the victim, applying the pressure of his body onto the animal. The implication is that he is placing himself onto and into this animal. Secondly, the laying on of hands is done so that the sacrifice may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. The sacrifice is for him. It will die in his place as the ram did for Isaac. Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Genesis twenty-two thirteen. There is an identification between the man and the animal, for the animal is killed in the stead of the sinner. Thirdly, this killing takes place so that the animal might make atonement on his behalf. His sin is covered by the blood of the one who dies in his place. Fourthly, the laying of hands at times took place in conjunction with the confession of sins. These two actions took place together on the, on the day of atonement. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. By means of the laying on of hands and verbal confession, the sins were transferred onto the animal. He thus became not only the bearer of the sins, but also the substitute for the sinner. The four explanations listed above for the laying on of hands are thus not mutually exclusive. The owner of the animal 
lays his hand on the head of the appointed sacrifice, leans on the animal to place himself onto and into this substitutionary victim, and confesses his sins to transfer them onto the sacrifice. Next question, did the Israelite confess his sins over the animal? As noted above, the Israelite did confess his sins in conjunction with some sacrifices. Confession was done, for example, in connection with the guilt offering. We see this in Leviticus 5, 5 through 6. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest confessed over the scapegoat all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. The likelihood is great that confession of sins was also a vital part of the ritual of other sacrifices. Were the sacrifices for God or for man? Various pagan cults in the ancient world offered sacrifices as food to their gods and goddesses. This reason for sacrifice is explicitly rejected by God. We see this in Psalm 50, verses 8 through 15. God had no need of the sacrifices of Israel. Rather, Israel needed these sacrifices. God gave the sacrificial liturgy to Israel after giving them the law, so that they might have a divinely ordained means by which they could be cleansed of their transgressions of the law. The sacrifices were thus not from God, but for man. The Lord gave his church the tabernacle, the altar, and the sacrificial animals, so that through these means he might dwell among his people, hear their prayers, grant them forgiveness, and be their good and gracious father. What benefits were received from the sacrifices? Well, through the sacrifices, as through means, God gave the Israelites gifts, such as the following. Uh, forgiveness of sins, Leviticus 4.20, so the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. Secondly, blessing and righteousness. Thirdly, cleansing. Fourthly, acceptance. Leviticus 1.3, he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Above all else, however, the Lord gave the sacrifices as the chief means by which he directed his people to look for the coming sacrifice of the Messiah. Every bull, every goat, Every lamb, every dove and pigeon was a preview of the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Lastly, is it correct to think of the Old Testament sacrifices as sacraments or as Baptists, we might call them ordinances? Yes, the Old Old Testament sacrifices, especially the bloody sacrifices, were not just plain flesh and blood, but flesh and blood included in God's command and combined with God's word. To these physical things, the Lord joined his word of forgiveness and cleansing. And Chad Bird's a Lutheran, so he says the Lutheran confessions speak of covenant signs and signs of grace or sacraments, such as circumcision, the many kinds of sacrifice in the Old Testament, and holy baptism. The flesh and blood of these animal sacrifices were prefigurements of the flesh and blood of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. As such, they conveyed to the believers the gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation, which would be acquired by Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. So that's been a long reading, but I hope it's been helpful to you to think about all of these sacrifices and um, all that we're going to read here in the book of Leviticus, because there's a lot we could say about it, but it's like getting a picture, getting it all in your mind um, to understand everything there that's going on and um, I think I think it's helpful to understand what these different sacrifices are, how they were done, um, and, and so on. But of course, they all point us ultimately to Jesus Christ, don't they? And 
that is what the sacrifices were always doing. It was Christ coming to his people to show them what he was going to do in the future. Um, Leviticus 1.4 says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This is by Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon. He was made sin. Spurgeon writes this, Our Lord's being made sin for us is pictured here by the very significant transfer of sin to the bullock, which was done by the elders of the people. The laying of the hand was not a mere touch of contact, for in some other places of Scripture, the original word has the meaning of leaning heavily, as in the expression, your wrath lies heavy upon me. Psalm 88, verse 7. Surely this is the very essence and nature of faith, which not only brings us into contact with the great substitute, but also teaches us to lean upon him with all the burden of our guilt. Jehovah made all the offenses of his covenant people rest upon the substitute. And each one of the chosen is brought personally to confirm this solemn covenant act, when by grace he is enabled by faith to lay his hand upon the head of the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Believer, do you remember that wonderful day when you first realized pardon through Jesus the sin bearer? Can you make a glad confession and join with the writer in saying, My soul recalls the day of deliverance with delight, burdened with guilt and full of fears. I saw my Savior as my substitute, and I laid my hand upon him. Timidly at first, but courage grew and confidence was confirmed until I leaned my soul entirely upon him. And now it is my unceasing joy to know that my sins are no longer imputed to me, but are laid on him. Like the debts of the wounded traveler, Jesus, the like the good Samaritan, has said of all my future sinfulness, set that to my account. Blessed discovery, eternal solace of a grateful heart. My numerous sins transferred to him shall never more be found, whilst in his blood's atoning stream, where every crime is drowned. And that is the substance and the essence of all of these sacrifices. The last thing I want to read to you is uh, based off of Leviticus chapter 6, verse 13, where we read about a fire there that the priests were to keep going. It says, fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And uh, so let's think about here about this fire that was supposed to always be there. This is by Horatius Bonar. It's called the fire quenched. This was one of God's special commandments to Israel, and no doubt has a special meaning both to them and to us, for he speaks no random words, his trumpet utters no uncertain sound, he says only what he means, and he means all he says. His words are profoundly real, more so than those of the deepest thinker of any age, and far more enduring, for they are eternal words, embodying eternal truths. The fire, the altar, the sacrifice, the tabernacle have all passed away, but the truth embodied in these remains forever. It is for our instruction as truly as for Israel's. First of all, the fire. Fire in general is the symbol of wrath. It is sometimes the figure of purifying, but more commonly of anger, divine anger, anger on account of sin. For in no other connection do we ever read of divine anger. Not personal affront or caprice or pique or partiality or ill humor. None of these are ever connected with God's wrath. Only sin. The history of fire in scripture is very instructive. It begins in paradise and ends in the last chapter of Revelation. 
There is the flaming sword, the fire of the sacrifice, the fire of Sodom, the fire of Egypt's plagues, the fire of the pillar, the fire of Sinai, the fire of Korah, the fire enfolding itself of Ezekiel, the unquenchable fire, the fire that accompanies Christ's second coming, the fire of apocalyptic judgment, the lake of fire, the fire that comes down from heaven that is to consume the ungodly. These are some of the memorable allusions to fire in Scripture. Most of these are connected with the Shekinah, or visible symbol of the divine presence, intimating that it is from that presence that the fire proceeds, even from God himself. Thus God intimates most solemnly that there is such a thing as wrath. Yes, there is wrath, now hidden, one day to be revealed, wrath which the wicked treasure up against the day of wrath. God is not too benevolent, too merciful to be angry. If there be no anger in God, the Bible utterly deceives us. A large, very large portion of it is quite unmeaning or rather false. The expulsion from paradise, the deluge, Sodom, sacrifice, pain, death, sorrow, the law, the cross, the unquenchable fire. These are very plain intimations of wrath. Wrath against sin, wrath for the punishment, not merely for the deliverance or warning of the sinner. All the ills that flesh is heir to are originally and in their proper interpretation, however overruled, expressions of divine anger. How terrible for a sinner to be confronted with an angry God. How hateful a thing must sin be to excite that anger, to be the one thing that provokes his wrath. Secondly, we see the altar. The word means the place of sacrifice. It was elevated, implying that what was placed on it was lifted up to be presented to God. There was but one altar of sacrifice, one spot for the sinner to meet God. It was the most essential part of tabernacle and temple. Without it, there could be no place of worship for a sinner. A sinner can only worship at an altar, can only meet God there. Why? Let us see. There are two things very prominent and visible about the altar, the fire and the blood. The fire, the symbol of wrath, the blood, the symbol of the effects of that wrath and the affliction of punishment. Thus, while the altar proclaimed wrath, it also proclaimed wrath appeased in consequence of the deserved punishment having been inflicted. Condemnation and pardon were thus fully expressed. Hatred of sin yet love to the sinner. Inexorable justice, inexhaustible grace. No sin pardoned without first being punished, either in person or by substitute. No debt canceled without being fully paid. A just God and a Savior, not only a Savior, though a just God, but a Savior because a just God. Thus the altar was first the place of condemnation. There God condemned the sinner and his sin. Condemnation was the first thing the altar exhibited and proclaimed. But secondly, it was also the place of confession. The sinner comes not to hide, nor to extenuate, nor to excuse, nor to deny, but to confess his sin. Thirdly, it's the place of pardon. The pardon is the result of the condemnation, the condemnation of the substitute or surety. First condemnation, then confession, then pardon. Free and large and irrevocable. Fourthly, the place of meeting with God. The one spot on which God and the sinner can meet. Only over blood, over death, can the great business of salvation be transacted, and the great question of pardon settled between the sinner and God. There only is it lawful or honorable for God to meet with the sinner. There only is it safe or comfortable for the sinner to meet with God. There the great reconciliation takes place. The cross is the altar. At the cross we meet with God and God with us. 
There we learn our condemnation and our deliverance, our death and our life. There we confess, and there we are freely forgiven. There we know what sin is and what grace is. Our God is a consuming fire. Yet God is love. The fire upon this altar was peculiar in many respects. Firstly, it was kindled by God. At first, it was lighted directly from heaven, from the Shekinah glory. It was God's own fire. Secondly, it was fed with the fat of the sacrifices. The peace offering is specially mentioned in connection with this, as if that which ratified the peace was that which satiated the fire. Thirdly, it was never to go out. Once kindled, it was to burn always. It needed no rekindling. It was kindled by God, but fed and kept up by man. In the case of the lost, the fire of God is eternal and unquenchable. And in the case of the saved, it is only quenched, because exhausted in and by him who, as the eternal one, endured the wrath of eternity during his brief life on earth. Good news to sinners, the fire is quenched. There is one who has borne wrath for sin. He who accepts that one wrath-bearing is personally delivered from it all. But he who rejects it and tries to bear the wrath himself must reap what he sows and bear it forever. There is but one tabernacle, one altar, one fire, one sacrifice, one priest. Not two ways of approaching God or two ways of pardon, only one. He who accepts and uses that one is safe. But he who tries another must perish forever. Yes, there is but one cross, one Christ, one Savior, but he is sufficient. Christ is all and in all. Well, that's where we want to stop this week. As we think about Leviticus, um, we're going to uh, continue into uh, chapter 10, I think, next week, right? I think so. Um, And so we will continue walking through Leviticus. And I hope as you read this, you'll be able to see Christ and the pictures of Christ being preached to the Old Testament saints and to us uh, through these words and texts. So keep persevering through Leviticus um, as we hear, as we learn, as we see Christ here in the scriptures preached and proclaimed uh, to us. Thank you so much for listening to this. Take care and God bless.